Voice of San Diego podcasts are sponsored by the Bob Nelson Charitable Fund, honoring the San Diego Harbor Police Foundation. This Voice of San Diego podcast is sponsored by Manolatis Nelson Murphy, Advertising and Public Relations. M&M brings decades of experience and their vast network to you. The firm develops insightful strategies and cost-effective tactics to help clients achieve their goals and connect to those who matter most. M&M specializes in media relations, community engagement, crisis communications, and cross-platform marketing. Learn more at mnmadpr.com. Thanks for joining us on the Voice of San Diego podcast in partnership with News Radio 600 Coco. I am Scott Lewis, the CEO and editor chief at Voice. I'm joined as always by assistant editor Andrew Keats. Hi. <laughs> Put your phone down, Andrew. <laughs> I'm joined as always by assistant editor Andrew Keats. Hello. Managing editor Sarah Libby. Hello. Coming up on the show today, Todd Gloria may have resolved his one unforced error of the campaign season, may not have, may have. A new rent control law may have caused renters some problems. And SDSU and the city are continuing to negotiate over Mission Valley land. And the friends of SDSU have a message for the community. They want them to to pressure the city council to get it done. But we also have a special series of stories this week. You may have seen it if you follow our newsletter, social media, or just go to the website. It's a series of investigations all about police officers who have been convicted of crimes and yet kept their jobs. It's part of a statewide collaboration. We um, partake, partook, partooken, partook. Yeah, partooken. Partooken. Partooken is, is actually the proper. <laughs> With dozens of newsrooms. So reporter Jesse Marks, who led that for us, is going to share the biggest findings of that investigation. Sarah, good job on that. Hey, thanks. You had all your work done several months before the others did. That's right. Just waiting for something to fall apart so that we couldn't use them. Exactly. Good job. All right. But first, the Friends of SDSU campaign started running ads asking supporters to pressure the city of San Diego to accept the university's purchase offer for the land in Mission Valley. The group says the university's done more than its part, including this. Environmental impact report and created new stadium renderings. With your help and input, we can ensure SDSU West will be a regional asset for everyone. Stadium renderings. They delivered stadium renderings. Oof. That's huge. That love is a, huge. Love a good rendering. Nothing gets people excited around here like a good delivered stadium rendering. But the tournament is over, guys. The, the, the great San Diego Stadium rendering tournament has produced a winner. It's over. I feel like we need like a sad in memoriam for all the stadium <laughs> renderings oh, yeah. that, like, that, would be great. that have like fallen. Academy Award style. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be great. Now all we have are development renderings of like shopping centers and whatnot, which just don't have the same ring to them. Yeah, there was uh, there was a good one in Fashion Valley yesterday. Heck oh, of a rendering. There you go. Really? Yeah. What's that for? Uh, I don't really know. It seems like a mall. 
Oh, yeah. It seemed like it was the, what the one rendering was. Do you guys... Like, re- the, they're going to turn them all into a mall? The the mall renderings <laughs> always have, like, really dope fashion yeah. people, like, overloaded with bags. The, yeah. yeah. like yeah. the Or, like, the uh, the stacked bags. Like the, oh, um, yeah. Are we talking know? about the watercolor version, or is this, like, the graphic digitized one? Either. I think it was graphic digitized. Because I'm kind of a fan of the watercolor. Yeah. Yeah. It's good stuff. A little artistic. The uh, the best. I like the little Andy, little, remember, little kid with the balloon is like a, a staple of every real estate. <laughs> do you remember the best rendering. one though, Andy? Well, the the boat show definitely was the best. No, the best was the Balboa Park 2015. Oh God, celebration! Yes. I can't. Oh. And, and throw the, me off I've, the podcast. There was, it, that. there was a, there was one that was a trampoline bridge. That crossed this very Whoa. wide river. We don't know what river because there's not one like that in San Diego, but it was a certainly not in Balboa Park. <laughs> and it showed people. Do you remember this? Like bouncing, like these, but like these whole figures. body, like yeah, like like they had what very would have been like fifty feet in the air. Yeah, like twenty five feet or thirty feet in the air, and they're like their bodies are all contorted like in a Goya painting or something. It was yeah. just like. That's the best. Oh, that man. was the Edge 2050. Yeah, 2015. Of- yeah, it was. It was gonna. It was gonna be the biggest party San Diego ever put on. It never happened. <laughs> Nothing ever happened. Remember when t- then Councilman Todd Gloria was like, "We're not going to observe Balboa Park's anniversary with a sheet cake," and he was right. We didn't even do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> didn't even do the sheet cake. Couldn't even do that. All right. Speaking of Todd Gloria, so people always ask me about the mayor's race. He's running for mayor. Uh, they want me to like handicap it or something. I told them, I always tell them like after 2016, not doing that ever again. Sure. No. Done it's with that. It's a fat. great move. Um, I don't even like the word like front runner. Or right. Anything, no. It's really like... tough. But I do say this when they ask me, I say, how can it be going better for Todd Glory? What could he have wanted to achieve so far in the race that he didn't? And it's it's hard to find anything. He's raised more money. He's gotten all of the contested endorsements he's uh he doesn't he seem the party endorsement most importantly party and labor yeah uh he so again anything can happen yeah. truly anything can happen right the the way i have been saying it is that like anything you can measure anything that isn't just right. a generic feeling anything that is measurable he is ahead on right there has been one setback though and it's this. So last week, the state's Fair Political Practices Commission fined him a whopping two hundred dollars. Ooh. Yes. <laughs> not not going out that week. You're right. He's it's a little bit light in the pocket now. The whole Gloria for Mayor campaign. Gloria filed. Uh, he failed to file the necessary paperwork for his 2020 campaign for assembly. Andy Keats here did a rundown about what we know about this situation. So he quickly filed that paperwork. And what was that paperwork? He had to file a formal declaration saying he, Todd Gloria, is running for assembly. And it is interesting because he's not running for assembly and he's been very clear about that. Right. Uh, He's always been running for mayor of San Diego. So Gloria's campaign explained to you and to everybody he's just had to do this uh, because he's expected to raise money as the assembly. What is he, whip now? Yes, majority whip. Something? Yeah, Yeah, majority whip. So, uh, so... The, the fine's over. Your research seemed to point that, that might resolve everything for him. Yeah, so he was also sued. There was a civil suit. Right. And there is, you know, we'll, we'll we'll see if the lawyer for the person who, who brought this lawsuit uh, agrees with this. But there is, 
seemingly straightforward uh, statutory language that says once a uh, once a body has levied a punishment on on a, an issue like this, whether it's the FPPC or a district attorney or an attorney general, that um, the cause for civil action is obviated. Um, and so we'll see if that continues to be the case. But if that does prove to be the case, then not only will this uh, fine close things as far as the FPPC is concerned, but it may clear up the outstanding uh, civil case against him, which is probably more important because a civil case presented the possibility of having to go through discovery, depositions, and you could probably kick up some mud if you got to go through that process. How do we feel about the word scandalito? I like it. I know. Scott I feel pretty good about it. it. Yeah, I think it's great. Why do you think I love it? You like to coin terms. Yeah, it's You're good. A term coiner. It's a scandalazo would be a oh yeah a big that's, scandal. That's right? bigger. But for sure. So it's, it's got to be an ornate. It's not a scandalazo. So that's the legal. Yes. Jeopardy he's in, right? Sure. But there's also or, like a perception. No longer in. There's a perception though here that might that might have a problem for him. Like they might be able to say like he literally swore. He's running for assembly when he literally knew he wasn't. Like, does that have any like political consequence? I mean, you could take a shot at it, right? I I think. Well, what you just said is pretty straightforward, and I think that's sort of always the the obstacle to making political hay out of something is how complicated is it to yeah. convey to to voters. So maybe you could. I yeah. don't know. I, I mean, think it would be relatively easy. You know, he he got fined. Yeah. And, and that's all you need to say. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, is is that your best bet? It, like if you're deciding between a number of things that you want to fill up somebody's mailbox with, is like an FPPC fine the, the one that you want to hang your hat on? I, I guess. mean, like ethics fine yeah, or something. You yeah. could sex it up for sure. <laughs> well, we'll see if it does. Uh, it's the $200 he'll probably be able to handle, but we'll see if that has any tail. But again, everything seems to be going uh, well for him, and still no Republican. Although Mark Kersey and Scott Sherman got on the radio again as uh, right of center potential candidates and said we might run. Still time. How long is that going to go on? Wait, who said that? Mark Kersey and Scott Sherman said it on Kogo last week. I didn't even know that. I'm yeah. sorry, <laughs> uh, listeners who trust me to know these things. Sorry, I missed that. Okay, well maybe they will. <laughs> I don't. Uh, well, if they don't, I, I was going to put it in the politics report, but then I'm like, I'm done. Yeah, yeah. I'm done. That's, I, we, we've had like 65 like maybe Percy somebody watch. will run things. Uh, I will say though, if they don't like as well as everything has gone for Gloria, you don't have to use much imagination to to think of the path for Barbara Bree. Oh no! I mean, she's yeah. running to the right of Todd in a lot of ways. Is the, she though? She hasn't really. What has she been to the right of him on? Well. She doesn't have labor and he has labor. Okay. But she seems to be trying to angle to the left of him on criminal justice or maybe. That's true. Although I I don't know that that's like really figured heavily into her messaging. Right. And then Scooters. I mean, what is Scooters? Is Scooters left or right? Is pro Scooters left or right? It's not. The Airbnb scooter development thing isn't a clean left, right? It's more of like populism. But do you I love think, anything as much it, as she loves hating scooters? <laughs> I do you don't. think it resonates was, more with north of eight white people than yes, it does any? Absolutely. That's true. So it's probably to the right. Yeah. I was going to say it, it doesn't feel so much like a left-right issue to me as it feels conservative, like with a small C. Yes, yeah. yes, 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 exactly. And so now, like, 
I don't know. Can anybody think of somebody who's been elected mayor in this city with like a upscale Democrats and United Republicans primarily distributed north of the eight and disproportionately white has has a group like that ever yeah, elected a mayor has, in San Diego? It has, but the key in that was United Republicans, and I just don't see her trying to unite Republicans. Well, do I you feel think like they're going to vote for Todd Gloria, the labor-backed candidate? Some I don't know. Every, might. Like I keep seeing. You know, people, Ryan Klumpner told us he was behind true. him. That's true. Yeah, I just I'm just trying to play out the logic of her. Campaign, I understand, and no. I think it's not. I would. The, it's I, not I think that logic makes total sense if she pulls one of those triggers. She comes. Onto the right of one issue, one well. Solid. So, for instance, one that has been totally abandoned from after it made its debut in the first email she ever sent, which was reminding that she was pro pension reform. Yes, 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 and she quickly walked that back too. Yes, but who knows? Maybe it'll saying reappear. she wants to bring pensions back for city employees, and, and she was on the inclusionary housing. She was on the left of that, right? Yes, that's true. Although I think. So it was Todd, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So um, fascinating. I don't know. We'll see if, if she does choose to go to the right at all. I've been waiting for that for, for some time, along with some of the right of center candidates who are maybe, definitely, maybe right. We'll find out this week. Last month, California Governor Gavin Newsom signed a law that will cap rent hikes in the state. So basically says that after the new year, you cannot raise rents more than 5% plus inflation, right? Something like that? Yes. All right. That'll kick in January 1st. But in a case of perhaps unintended consequences, we've heard from several tenants who say that landlords are scrambling to evict them or raise rates before the law becomes real. Now, we didn't actually get specific data on that, but we heard from several tenants. Uh, Lisa Alverstadt did the story. She found renters who were being forced to choose between leaving their homes or paying for these rent increases. Sarah, what was uh, the basics of what she found? Yeah, so a lot of people um, had reached out and told us, you know, that they were facing, before this law goes into effect, you know, 10, 20% rate hikes or just uh, really massive increases. And so they were having to weigh whether that's something they could digest and continue living where they are or whether they would have to find a new place to live. And another thing that the law um, includes other safeguards for renters, such as, you know, you need to have a a reason to evict someone. So some of those people told us that landlords were trying to implement, you know, new rules that would make it essentially impossible for them to continue living there. And therefore, the landlords might have a reason to go ahead and evict them, such as telling people in a building full of pets that it's now against the rules to have pets. Mm. Now, there was other cities that seemed to have it worse. We also found that maybe some of San Diego's existing tenant protections might have kept it from being too much a part of this trend. Yeah, so San Diego already has a measure in place that says you basically have to have a a reason to evict someone. It can't just be completely arbitrary. And so it seems like that there are enough restrictions in place in the city that it's maybe not impacting places that don't have those types of rules. But there have been a lot of stories up and down the state. It's been especially bad in Los Angeles of people just facing these massive rent hikes um, before the law goes into effect. Hey, what's going on? So, so the last year there was a vote on rent control and it failed and now there's rent control. 
Correct. That was a ballot measure. Right. Yeah. And this is a law, but yeah. That, which had been coordinated. I think the governor had sent a signal that he wanted some sort of tenant yes. protection measure and the legislature worked with him to get it. What's interesting though, in your initial um, telling that this was potentially a situation of unintended consequences, uh, Liam Dillon, our old buddy, and Matt Levin, Cal Matters, have both, following this legislation from its creation, have noted that this possibility was mentioned at the onset, that there would be this potential time period that would lead to this exact thing. So I like scramble before the door closes. Yeah. yeah and that and, and that there were, had been some discussion about ways you could alleviate that problem that just never were included in the piece of legislation. So it's like more in uh, a, a situation of, of like failing to plug up some foreseen problems than mm-hmm. something that they just didn't see coming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, will all the worries that people have expressed about rent control and its effect on the housing market, will, will, does this law have anything that alleviates that or is it really just rent control? Well, we'll see. I think it doesn't apply to new construction, oh. I believe, which is the uh, an attempt to deal with that problem. Interesting. All right. Well, that'll be something to watch. Okay, about eight months ago, we got a call from the University of California, Berkeley, the investigative reporting project there. And some of the leaders had come into a database. And we passed that um, inquiry over to reporter Jesse Marks, who joins us in the studio today. They had come across a database. What was in it, Jesse? Well, so initially the list that they got had 12,000 names in it. And what they did was it it didn't have a lot of identifying information attached to it other than pretty much names, right? And so they started tapping different journalists across the state. I think more than 30 newsrooms ultimately wound up signing up to figure out who these were and to verify whether or not they were actually members of law enforcement. So uh, for months, me... Andy, other reporters, interns in the office, we went to all the various courthouses in San Diego County to start pulling records. We also sent a freelancer out to Imperial County, ultimately found across the state that there were 630 members of law enforcement who'd been convicted of crimes over the last 10 years. So there, it wasn't that easy, though, at first, right? There, the California government, especially the attorney general, did not want that list to exist in the public, at least. Yeah, he actually sent a threatening letter to the journalists in Berkeley and basically told them that this was released by accident and merely possessing a copy of it is illegal. So destroy it, please. Are you in jail right now? uh, Sometimes it feels like that. (laughs) Sorry. um, I want to be clear. It's pretty um, straightforward that it's not illegal. And it was, you know, essentially a political letter Mm -hmm. um as opposed to a legal one um but obviously you know making it very public like that was uh threatening and that threat had been in the news so when we got the call about this list we already knew absolutely by having having read those those stories about the the discrepancy over the list so you start to dig in and the idea is that a bunch of different newsrooms across the state We'll now take that list and go and see what these cases actually were, right? What did you actually have to go on? 
So initially we had 53 cases and we wound up identifying 48 defendants just in San Diego County alone. And we started pulling not just the criminal files themselves, but also the civil files attached to these these folks and um, confirmed that about two thirds of them were actually members of law enforcement, either before, during or after their criminal convictions. And yeah. It, so there were a lot of details that we had to nail down because it was essentially just a list of names. We didn't know what agency these people potentially worked for. It could have been California Highway Patrol. It could have been the sheriff's office. It could have been the SDPD. And we also didn't know whether the convictions um, attributed to their name happened before they became cops, while they were on the force, um, nothing. We didn't have any of that. And the goal at the first was just to look and see what you found. It wasn't necessarily Mm -hmm. to craft or prove any hypothesis at all, right? Yeah, exactly. We were just gathering the facts at that point. We weren't even really sure that we were going to find any trends or any interesting stories. So we should also mention Katie Stiegel. She worked with us. She was our intern on this. Uh, She worked with you closely on that. And Lyle Morn was the uh, uh, freelancer who worked on the Imperial County cases. Okay. So you guys, so what do you start to see come in as far as trends and data? So the the crimes ranged from trespass. The initial charges ranged from trespassing to theft. Uh, there was a lot of DUIs, but we noticed pretty quickly that there were there was also a substantial number of domestic violence cases, which actually mirrored the findings across the state. It was the second largest category of crimes. Uh, and what we started to find when we were pulling court transcripts and court records was that. Oftentimes, a defendant's background in law enforcement was a topic of conversation, and we started to realize very quickly that there were special exemptions uh, that were afforded to these uh, defendants who had backgrounds in law enforcement. So sometimes it would be as subtle as just a defense attorney bringing it up in court, and then other times it would be as explicit as a judge basically saying, I'm going to rule a certain way because you're a police officer. And so you actually ended up profiling the case of one officer who's on the San Diego Police Department who had been accused of rather violent incident and is still on the force, right? Yeah, that's correct. In 2011, he was accused of knocking his wife unconscious. And uh, he wound up pleading down to a property damage crime, which was not uncommon for these guys who'd initially been charged with corporal injury. Uh, And he got to keep his gun in the process. He got to keep his job. And then SDPD confirmed for us that as a patrol officer over the next couple of years, he would have likely responded to domestic disturbances. At the moment, however, he's pretty much been put on desk duty. They told us he's in the Southern Division and he just greets the public as they come in there. So you can draw your own conclusions about what SDPD you know, decided to do with this guy over the long term. Mm. You also, so that that was one case. Uh, was there, is there some larger trend about police officers not being prosecuted in the same way that others are or in in otherwise seeing their their uh, crimes be pled down well we did see that there was i mean so half of the half of the people on our list who were uh, who we confirmed were police officers did plead down mm-hmm. right and we actually compared those numbers to uh pleadings down across the entire county and found that there was a slightly higher percentage of uh, police officers at a slightly higher rate, they were pleading down to more favorable charges. It was such a small sample size, though, we didn't dwell on it a whole lot. I think the larger purpose was to figure out just how these guys are being treated in the courtroom. And I say guys because they were pretty much all men. I should say also when we were pulling cases, you know, in the early stages before we had really dug in, we were awfully confused often because the case you would 
plead what you would you would see just the, like a misdemeanor charge of and very minor misdemeanor charges things like noise noise violations offensive uh, language offensive language yes. in public things like that and i i remember at the time thinking boy this might be a dud like this mm. is not interesting at all and but that wound up becoming interesting yeah. because uh we found that a quarter of the people on our list pleaded down to disturbing the peace yeah so they were actually in a lot of cases domestic violence or there were also some prostitution cases that pled down to something so minor that it was almost unrecognizable. So the violent incident that Jesse described with the officer and his wife, you know, he pleaded down to a a charge related to he he ended up cracking her cell phone during, during that the incident. And so the, that uh, was yeah. what the charge was related to, you know, damaging her property where he also knocked her unconscious. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Lyle's work in uh, Imperial County. So there were like two specific kind of flagrant cases there that hadn't had kind of flown under the radar of media coverage. Yeah. So one that was particularly disturbing was a corrections officer in Imperial County um, who worked for the sheriff's department who similarly had a a violent domestic incident with his wife at the time. And he was allowed to keep his job at the sheriff's office even as those charges were pending and they were well aware of the charges and what they entailed. And on the day he returned from leave from that incident, he began um, harassing and groping um, and really terrorizing a, a male coworker, and for that he was ultimately fired. Well, they actually won't release details on whether he resigned voluntarily or was fired, but he's no longer employed there. And there's been some rather quick reaction from lawmakers in California. So, what makes California different, and what did they say? Well, so California is one of only five states that doesn't automatically decertify police officers when they've been convicted of crimes. Florida, Georgia are actually pretty aggressive on this front. So if you've been found guilty of even a misdemeanor or if you've engaged in uh, misconduct and that has been sustained, they can get rid of you. California doesn't do that. California essentially allows local jurisdictions to decide for themselves whether or not somebody's worthy of continuing to carry a badge. So in response to this series coming out this week, uh, three lawmakers, who are positioned on the uh, the Senate and the Assembly Public Safety Committees have all come out and said it's time to revisit this and it's time to have a larger conversation about what role the state should have in stripping cops of their badges. And I thought it was interesting when you talked to SDPD in particular that they almost defended their decision to employ certain officers with criminal backgrounds because they said it made them you know, more sympathetic when they're out in the community and they've sort of gone through that experience themselves. But when you contrast that with, say, the officer who's been convicted of domestic violence and we now know that he most likely was responding to domestic violence incidents. And so it can play the other way, too, where, you know, that officer might be more likely to side with the abuser because of his experience. They also made a financial argument too, and they said, "Look, if somebody was if somebody was convicted of a, of a fairly minor offense like an alcohol related offense, we've put so much money into training these folks. Is it really fiscally responsible to get rid of them?" And I I don't think that's a very strong argument in the end. Uh, but that was another one that they put forward. Yeah, and, and so part of what I was asking is like there is a there is a certain discussion to be had about well, you know, people pay their price or whatever, and and we we welcome back we try to welcome them back into society. What, what are the standards that people have talked about about what officers, what we should expect of officers? 
Well, officers themselves, uh, many of them, including SDPD's uh, police chief, have said officers absolutely deserve to be held to a higher standard. But I mean, if you step back and consider, for example, that we've been reporting for two years on teachers who abuse students in the classroom and are nevertheless allowed to keep their jobs, um, that seems universally considered a bad way of handling things. And I think the same would go here for, you know, I think everyone absolutely is entitled to a second chance. And after they've paid their dues, you know, should should live, you know, the life they want to live. But is, does everybody have a right to be a police officer? I don't think they do. Yeah, I think. And and it, none of, no part of the series said like police officers are more likely to commit crimes or or have some high percentage of it. It was it was more about there's just so many of these stories we're only now seeing, right? Yeah, that's the thing is a lot of these cases, I think it was what, like uh, half of the cases almost hadn't been reported in the press before across the state, which is pretty significant. And the response from the Police Chiefs Association, which they immediately released a statement on Sunday as these stories started dropping, and they said, well, 630 is not a very large number. If you do the math, it's less than 1% of, of all of the sworn members of law enforcement. But that criticism misses the point. The larger question was once these guys are in the criminal justice system, how are they treated and how are they handled? And so they were sort of bypassing what was the purpose of the entire discussion. Yeah, there was no part of the message of what we wrote that was like, oh, they're all bad. Yeah, absolutely. It is a small percentage. That's undeniable. Mm -hmm. Jesse Marks, any other things you learned from this? There was a a long, long, a lot of court visits. Uh, (laughs) A lot of time, a lot of money. Investigative journalism is expensive. That's what I've learned. Yeah. <laughs> and time-consuming. Yes. I approved a lot of expenses. I, I, I'm happy to see this come to fruition. Good job on that. Thank you. Uh, and that, that is a good segue to, hey, this, this stuff isn't free. We, uh, we decide to make it available to everybody so they can read and share it. But um, it's not definitely not free to produce. So please, if you uh, want to support this kind of work, please do go to voiceofsandiego.org slash donate. Jesse, uh, great work. And to Lyle and, and Katie out there, thanks for your cooperation. It was great. Thanks for listening to the Voice of San Diego podcast, the most popular public affairs podcast recorded in downtown San Diego in this section, this little area of downtown You can read Jesse's stories and more about the whole statewide collaboration and investigation at vosd.org slash cops. I'm Scott Lewis, CEO and editor-in-chief. Andrew Keats is assistant editor. Sarah Libby's managing editor. And this show is produced by Nate John, Megan Wood, and Adriana Heldes. We will talk to you next week.